about five years on, but did it really start a hundred years ago? Putin pulls out, or has he, fighting in the city the importance of urban warfare training. In the urban environment, all those sorts of skills and drills、um, need to be adapted. It's the ultimate sort of complex and close terrain. And why RFA Lime Bay is Ship of the Year. But first today, one of the world's top security officials has warned Europe is still dealing with the migration crisis in a messy way. The Secretary General of the Organisation for Security and Cooperation in Europe, Lamberto Zanier, said international divisions were standing in the way of an effective solution. He's been talking to our correspondent James Hurst. I think the problem we have there is that we have lacked、uh, strategic foresight.、Uh, so we are now. Intervening in an emergency mode ourselves, and、uh, the deal with Turkey, the pressure on the borders, the intervention of armies in countries uh, uh, like the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia,、uh, and and these are things that we shouldn't be seeing. That should have been uh, somehow prevented. Unfortunately, the other problem we are seeing is the、uh, inability of the international community, because. Of the increasing divisions within the international community, the increasing polarization of relations, and、uh, as we call it, the return of geopolitics. But what what is, in your assessment, the situation now? Is there a plan in place that is going to deal with it? I think we、uh, we are dealing with this、uh, still in a messy way, and and we, we are、uh, the, the, the strategies to piecemeal、uh, the reaction of countries is、uh, not uniform.、Uh, The, the basic problem when it comes to refugees and refugees from a conflict is is a lack of solidarity. I would like to see within my region or within my organisation more solidarity. In dealing,、uh, we have a situation where we have uh,、um, a, a massive humanitarian、uh, problem. We need to stick together. And, is, is this not exactly the kind of thing that OSCE was set up for? No, not at all. Not at all. The, the OSCE was was established in a different、uh, in a different environment. But we have to. Uh, deal with security challenges as borders as, and as, crisis、uh, management are, are、uh, part of your remit. Well, yes, and that's why we're having this debate. And but of course, the OSC as such can only provide the kind of response that the、uh, states that are members of the organisation can give. And we see also within the OSC divisions, even division in terms of、uh, how much of a role. Uh, can and should the OSC play in this context, as opposed to say to the European Union? What's the consequence if we, as Europe, don't properly address that? We continue to to keep a holding pattern on this.、Issue? If Europe fails to address it, Europe will be the first victim of this. How can I say the lack of solidarity within the EU will weaken the EU itself?、Uh, secondly, it, the EU will in, will will export instability. Into the Balkans, for instance, and、uh, we have already seen uh, at some point uh, problems between uh, neighboring countries, non-EU countries, and sometimes the EU monopolizes the dialogue and doesn't involve these countries enough. Your observer mission in Ukraine、uh, is, is about to be extended for another year. You've had it for more than a year now. What's actually been achieved in that time with that mission? Yeah, actually, it's、uh, the decision on the extension has been taken, and、uh, I think we are、uh, we are there for longer than we would have expected in the in the beginning.、Uh, what we have done on the ground, I think, we brought the, the international community there, so we are the eyes and ears of the international community. There are very different narratives about this conflict. We are providing a unified narrative in a way. But to some eyes, the 
the information that you've been able to provide from Lahansk, Donetsk, there has not been a reliable flow. And, and that makes it difficult to, to build trust, doesn't it? Yeah, well, on the one hand, we've made clear that we keep uh, facing obstacles when it comes to freedom of movement of our people. Who's stopping you? Um, mainly the, the separatist militias. Sometimes we're stopped also on the Ukrainian side, but, but most of the incidents are on the, on the separatist side. We have very occasionally, uh, we have access to the border. We have uh, also cases of uh, monitors being, uh, being kidnapped. Uh, so uh, I would have wanted to see uh, uh, more respect for our role and more cooperation for what we do. That was the Secretary-General of the Organisation for Security and Cooperation in Europe, Lamberto Zanier, speaking to James Hurst. Well, joining me as ever is our Defence Analyst, Christopher Lee. Um, he sounded extremely frustrated there, didn't he? Uh, they, they are frustrated. And uh, let me tell you, it, this, this organisation came from the Conference on Security and Cooperation that took place in Stockholm for three years. In 1975, we had the famous Helsinki Accords, and for that, this organisation was born. It had no authority to do anything. It would do things on part on, on, the, on the behalf of Europe, and if you think about Europe in 1975, it was still facing in the Cold War, etc. So it was given no authority. It can't take any action, etc. Now, we've got a thing that James was asking about, you know, getting into Dianetsk, for example, and getting information. What's the important part of that? Because they can't get any access, for example, to documented uh, 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 information. Therefore, you can't have any legal system that can work properly. So they then go back to the rest of the EU and say, listen, these guys are being unhelpful at the very, 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 very best. They're being unhelpful. Mm. And it, Europe says, hang on, we've got other problems. He, sp he spoke about, in, t in, in the light of Europe, he talked about the return of geopolitics. Well, I mean, I, I never thought it went away. W what was he meaning there? The return of geopolitics in, 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 in the sense that you've now got a bigger crisis. The bigger crisis, uh, at one point, they were, they were pretty easy. You, you had dealt with the, uh, the Balkans. Now you're dealing with, with Ukraine, but you're also dealing with a face-off between not only Europe but also America with, with, with President Putin. And therefore, everything, everything that you wanted to do had to have a designer as if to say, OK, we've put Putin in a special box. As long as it doesn't fix or you don't try and take the authority to do something about that relationship, we'll go along with he, you. He also talked about that the lack of strategic foresight, a theme we talk about a lot on this programme, and also the inability of the international community. Um, what does that say about the way Europe is going? Do you think it's going to be more bilateral agreements and arrangements? H how do you think it will go? Right, without getting into this debate, stay in, stay out stuff, right, at the moment, the founding fathers of the European Union or the Treaty of Rome, again, at exactly the same year, 1975, the founding fathers said, unless you pull all the European countries together, and at that stage they had no idea that it would include Eastern Europe, they were still behind the, uh, the, the block. Unless you do that, you will have no authority, you will have no strategic understanding, and the most important point, you will never have the agreement of all the countries. We're back exactly where we were in 1975, both for him and also for the EU. Still to come, street fighters, why the army thinks urban warfare training is vital and the frontline ship manned by civilians RFA Lime Bay is ship of the year. 
So it's been five years since the start of the present unrest in Syria. BFBS uh, Christopher Lee, a defence analyst, still here, uh, marking the fifth anniversary, but uh, you'll say it's the 100th, wouldn't you? OK, there's a conference going on today, yeah, isn't there? And uh, the big deal of the conference is Turkey. What's Turkey doing about for the for the refugees? If they, if they accept one, they're going to send one back and all sorts of deals like this. Turkey's relationship with, with Syria has been actually vital in this, but the history of it goes back and this is where it starts. This started 100 years ago, this whole thing. And what happened, there was a big place called Mesopotamia and the British came along and they beat the people that owned Mesopotamia, which was the Ottoman Empire. Who was the Ottoman Empire? The Turks. So they beat the Turks, Al-Faisal... Uh, Emir al-Faisal says, I want that big chunk of land, which is Syria. The Turks said, no, he shouldn't have it. And therefore you had already a build-up which was going to last 100 years. You know, you just made the best argument I've heard in a long time for keeping history in schools for anyone who wants to go into politics or foreign affairs in the future. Um, I mean, when you see that in the light of, of what's going on today and we talk about a, a strategic description of where we need to end up, the talk of having President Assad staying on in Syria or not or fighting IS, it all, it all seems a little bit sort of temporary and ephemeral, doesn't it? Well, it does, excepting that if you think what happened to, in, in the year 2000. In the year 2000, uh, President Assad's father died and the people in Damascus said, is his son up to it? Because if he's up to it, uh, one day we're going to have to face up to people who want revolution, if necessary, to get change, but we're also going to have to face up to it with our old enemy, the Ottomans, i.e. the Turks. Where are we today? We've got uh, President Assad, who none, nobody is really sure whether he's so-called up to it. Mm. What's he doing? He's facing up to, uh, uh, to the Turks. OK, what is the, the realistic strategy for the West in Syria? The realistic strategy is to try and get an arrangement where Assad either goes before some sort of truce, which is almost impossible to think so, or there is an he's agreement... He's not looking like he's no. going to go at well, all at not, the moment. Not at the moment, because thanks to the Russians, he's probably winning. Uh, if you like that, it's the small movement on the ground winning, which, you know, tomorrow it may not be winning. But the most important thing, Assad is seen by the rebel opposition because they are losing the support of the Americans and everybody else, right, left and centre, the support they once had. They're getting a strange, a, a, a different sort of tactical and theatre uh, military uh, conclusion at the moment, with thanks partly, partly to the Russians. So don't forget the, the Iranians in, are, are in this as well. They're getting closer. The Syrians could actually retake Aleppo, etc., etc., etc. And there, and you've got to remember what was the biggest damage when this thing started in March, March five years ago. It was the taking and the shelling of Aleppo. Mm. Well, let, let's talk about Russia now, because President Putin has warned that Russia could ramp up its military presence in Syria within hours, if necessary. But he's told an audience of Russian military chiefs in the Kremlin that they wouldn't want to. Let's talk to former Kremlin advisor Alexander Neskrasov. Uh, good to speak to you today, Alexander. Uh, Hello. President, President Putin believes military intervention was a success, clearly believes that he'd, he'd go back if it's worthwhile. In what circumstances do you think he'd put more... More troops back into Russia. I mean, well, to Syria, I beg your pardon. Well, first of all, I think that the whole move was planned uh, to help the uh, negotiations in Geneva.
a sort of a goodwill gesture. And when uh, President uh, Putin was talking on the phone with Obama on the day uh, it was announced, the, the withdrawal of the Russian troops, uh, he did point out to him that it was a goodwill gesture on the part of Russia uh, to help the diplomatic process. And he was expecting the Americans and their allies to do something as well. Mm. Now, unfortunately, in, in Geneva, it's not looking good, is it? The... Syrians said they're not going to talk uh, to the rebels directly, so the UN envoys is, is running between two rooms and talking to to the respective parties. So it, it will go on for a long time. But let's face it, if Russia didn't intervene in Syria, we would not have had these talks at all. Mm. And this, I think, is one of the uh, advantages and benefits of the Russian intervention. Now, when Putin is saying... Just on the Russian intervention, mission accomplished, he says, President Putin. What, what was that mission exactly? Well, the, ma the mission was to, to achieve some sort of stability where talks can start and to uh, basically provide a situation where chaos is being, uh, well, resolved for a while at least, so that it, it forced the rebel groups, uh, I think more than 75 of them, to actually accept the ceasefire. I mean, let's face it, the ceasefire, okay, there are some incidents yep. happening, but it's, it is a success. He's reserving his right to go back in with more troops, though, isn't he? Under what circumstances would he do it? Is if, if President Bashar al-Assad didn't agree to, to go to have elections, what would it be exactly? Well, I think uh, the main, uh, I think what, what might happen is that we might see the collapse of the talks in Geneva and we might see the collapse of the ceasefire. Then the Russians might be tempted to go back. And to be honest with you, it doesn't really take a lot of time to bring back uh, all these uh, jets and all these troops. There's not that many of them, actually, that, uh, even, even during the height of the operation. So I, I think uh, Putin is showing flexibility. Mm -hmm. And uh, unlike the Americans, who don't, who don't really have a schedule, you know, we have this ongoing uh, bombing campaign, and nobody really knows when it's going to happen, and so on. And everybody says, what is Putin's endgame? And I usually ask them in return, and what is America's endgame? And they usually say to me, well, they want Assad out. And I said, well, excuse me, until uh, they deal with Daesh, Assad out doesn't work really. Mm. So, uh, and then we usually stop at that. <laughs> uh, Ukraine has been a messy affair for President Putin. Syria, he's claiming as a success. The real brains behind the Syria operation has been the defence minister, hasn't it, Sergei Shoigu? A powerful team. Well, it is a powerful team, but um, I must tell you honestly, my personal, and I've, I've just been to Moscow and I've been talking to some officials, my personal view is that the team in Moscow... Uh, probably, uh, you know, you can uh, you can uh, praise them for Syria, but they really made a mess in Ukraine, didn't they? Mm. And including Sergei Shoigu and the head of the intelligence services and so on. And um, I must say, when you mention that Putin has a mess in, in Ukraine, I think Europe has a mess in Ukraine, not just Putin. And uh, to be honest with you, I personally have spoken to so many journalists, very well-known journalists, and privately they concede that Russia had to intervene. There was no chance okay. that Russia couldn't intervene in Ukraine. Just, Christopher. I was just thinking, um, um, Alexandra, the, the well-known journalist, you know, journalists are people who, who meet the top people under the most humiliating circumstances, and they tend to publish anything that sort of goes along with what the other guy is saying as well. What we have here is something much simpler, don't we? We have somebody saying, 
what is Putin doing next? They're not saying what is Obama going to do next, because Obama doing next is about to step down from the White House. <laughs> and so the Americans have no policy on the Middle East at the moment. Uh, the, the, the Saudis are in a dangerous position as well. They have few, fewer policies that they can actually transmit. Everybody's wondering how long the rebels, what the rebels will do, because after the ceasefire they will have been able to regroup. In other words, the real question is when mm -hmm. this starts again, if it should start again, isn't it a fact that the Syrian-led opposition to the rebels will be in a better position than they were than when the ceasefire started. Alexander Nekrasov, um, you mentioned earlier that you, you're recently back from Moscow. I'm just uh, fascinated w with this partial withdrawal of Russian troops, um, how they're being received in Russia and how this recent intervention is being uh, viewed by the public. Well, the public obviously treats them as heroes, and uh, you might have seen some of the footage when they arrived that they were met with flowers, and uh, it was like a like a you know, celebration. Uh, now, I don't really think that it's a victory. I think that it was a positive um, move, uh, but I don't think the victory they can uh, toast victory. How do you I think that compares to the way the way that the, the British armed forces are received with the public? Well, I think the, the Russian armed forces have a much uh, bigger profile, and unlike the British forces, nobody's cutting their budget and cutting their numbers to the bone. I, I, I suspect the British armed forces are envious of the Russian ones, and I, I find it quite... Mr. would you like to come back on that? <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I'll tell you something. There, there, there's, something there's something very practical here, uh, Alexander. Um, the, the, the British have praised their, their, their our brave boys, etc., but only really on two occasions since the Second World War. One was the Battle of Britain because they had something to show and therefore they were praised by Churchill. The second time was in 82 when they single-handedly took back the Falklands because they didn't have allies. The difference here is that, um, I don't know, would you say the Russians were praised when they came back from uh, Chechnya, when they came back from Afghanistan? You celebrate in a different way in, 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 in Russia. I don't know about the whole of Russia, but certainly in Moscow. You do get out the state flowers and give everybody a, a bunch to sort of toss onto a tank or something like that. It is a different concept, isn't it? But the point is, so far, so good. There are no big stories in the newspapers about body bags coming back as there were mm. in Ukraine. Alexander Nekrasov. Well, first of all, I think that um, uh, the British troops have one big problem compared to the Russian troops. They are never given a mission. There is no specific mission. I'm, I'm sure I'm, I don't have anyone from the British military who can actually defend that. Point no, no, no. Of view, I just want I just want to say about Iraq, for example, there was no mission. It was like a, a, a police work, you know. So the, the the troops didn't really know what to do and you know what the timetable was and so on. Here we had a timetable, and I can uh, I want to remind the, the listeners. This is the, the, the short timetable. I, 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 by I want Putin. to remind listeners that when the operation started, Russian military officials said we will do a review you in five to six months if we see that we have achieved our aims we will be thinking of withdrawing so there was talk about this it's not like a it's a total shock to everyone whereas with the british side nobody really knows how long the operation you know in syrian bombing campaign and, and iraq is going to to last what is the end aim and so on now that is i think the big difference and uh, i think that the main problem is that the americans don't really have a proper policy in the middle you've got East. another thing here the uh, uh, and that is it's very simple. When the United Kingdom goes to war at the moment, apart from the Falklands and things like that, it goes to war as far as a part of a coalition. 
And when you're in a coalition, you quite often find, and we found this in uh, certainly in Iraq, in two wars in Iraq, that indecision was final. Nobody, there wasn't a policy. There wasn't a policy what you do after. But that was a huge operation. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of people. The operation we've seen, a, a, a successful operation by 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 Russian forces has been a, a, a quite a small operation and it's an operation that only one country by itself with its own objectives could carry out, you couldn't carry out as a, as a coalition. And on that point I will make the decision that we'll end this chat for today. Alexander Nikrasov, thank you very much for your time. Thank uh, Christopher, um, around today, well actually yesterday, the Chancellor's announcement in the budget, uh, more money for forces welfare. Yeah, and it, it's, it's in a way which people probably don't expect. It is in, it's, it's to give money uh, from a, in fact, from a, as a result of a city slush fund, which the government got some money out of, and they're going to give 3. it to five million, isn't it? Yeah, they're going to give it to the Samaritans. Now, there are people who, on the end of a telephone, when talking to somebody, you can ring up in a crisis or whatever. Coincidentally, um, one of my oldest friends died recently. Founded the Samaritans. Oh. And he and I worked on uh, worked on a programme for the forces, or people who were ex-forces, or appeared to be ex-forces. And one of the problems that we discovered was that people who were perhaps ex-forces had the same problems as civilians, but because they were ex-forces, we thought they were sort of special, and you needed special treatment, you had to have special understanding, which wasn't true. And I think the important thing about the bringing the forces into this whole Samaritan thing, which has taken a long time to do, I mean, to my personal knowledge, about sort of 20-odd years, mm. the importance is, is that we have to remind ourselves quite often, and the Chancellor has done this, perhaps inadvertently in the budget, that there's no difference between the anxieties and the frailties of people in the services than there are with civilians. It may not be for the, for the physical fears that they've had in, in, in combat. It is just the way that human beings are. There's uh, been a lot of talk this week about Libya, um, Defence Secretary making... I mean, what, what on earth is going on? It's about whether or not there's going to be some kind of British military presence on the ground, officially a deployment or not. What's, what's been going on? OK, uh, here's Libya. It's got three big organisations uh, fighting each other, uh, especially in the East, and this is a sort of military thing. Um, you've got an internationally recognised government, which nobody recognises can actually govern. That's a problem. So, and you've got somewhere in the region of 40 different... But in terms of this confusion hang on, about the... Be, be, hang on a minute. <laughs> be, by the time you've got 40 different militias operating as well. So well, there you have, back in Parliament, in the comfort of Parliament, mm. you have two people, uh, two groups, and one is the House of Commons Defence Committee, the other is the House of Commons Foreign Affairs right. Committee. The Foreign Affairs Committee are, have sniffed because the they've been out recently, haven't yeah. they? They've just come back from Libya. That's right. The United Kingdom has probably inserted forces, i.e. special forces, into Libya. That's what they suspect. Now, the House of Commons Defence Committee, led by Julian Lewis, uh, who is nobody's enemy, he believes that when the, when the Defence Secretary says we have not deployed and we don't intend to deploy, that's it, this job's settled. What they haven't done is distinguish between the two terms. If you deploy, we're talking about a battalion like a peacekeeping force. If you insert, you can do it surreptitiously. And that is the difference between the Foreign Affairs Com uh, Committee, who believe surreptitious insertion, and the Defence Committee, who say, no, 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 we're firmly on the MOD uh, side. There is no deployment.
In 30 years' time, most of the world's population is expected to be living in cities. This means future conflict is likely to be centred on the urban environment. Well, Carla Prater has been to Salisbury Plain to see a new training course teaching soldiers how to prepare for urban operations. Cope Hill Down on Salisbury Plain is one of the largest training areas for urban operations in the country. And this week, the Infantry Battle School have made it their home. They've just started running a new urban operations instructors course, teaching soldiers from corporal to captain the basic skills they can take back to their unit. After years spent focusing on training for conflicts like Afghanistan, this is part of efforts to broaden out the Army's skills. It's thought that by 2045, 70% of the world's population will be living in cities, which means future conflict is likely to be centred on the urban environment. So they're developing their training to match. Major Austin Salisbury says it's important they adapt their skills for future operations. With current trends, it's looking increasingly likely, um, almost, almost certain, I suppose, that we're going to be operating in the urban environment for anything we do operationally um, in the contemporary environment and in the future. And therefore, um, being able to actually operate um, in the urban environment is, is, a, is a key skill for all arms. So we spend a lot of our time training in sort of a, on an open terrain, doing, doing section and platoon attacks. In the urban environment, all those sorts of skills and drills um, need to be adapted. It's the ultimate sort of complex and close terrain. To make the training as realistic as possible, the soldiers are using the mark-around trainer system. It's paintball with a difference, and they'll certainly feel it if they get hit. Colour Sergeant Stephen Gibson says it makes them think more tactically. It puts a, a charge and work like a real-life enemy, so they know that round, the marking round is coming towards them. So they need to start thinking about the aspects of how they're going to move round a corner or over a bit of cover uh, and keeping low as they possibly can and using the, the, the terrain around them. So, yeah, it does put a life, a life feed on it. Their challenge is to clear three buildings. It's close-up and fast-paced against a live enemy. Corporal Chris Moffat from 39 Engineer Regiment is among those taking part. Um, it does make you think before you go in there. You get the adrenaline rush before going in, and you've you got to make sure your skills and drills are up there because you're going to get hurt otherwise. Over the next few days, these soldiers will train day and night, going through specially designed simulation buildings and some tight spaces. It's a revision of basic skills, learning how to communicate and command in this environment, preparing everyone for some of the different challenges ahead. That was Carla Prater reporting. Um, Christopher, I suppose it is nothing new doing this kind of training, but, but why this now? Well, if you think, I mean, Northern Ireland had this sort of thing. We re, uh, the, the, the army built a village down at Lid on the, on the Kent coast to do exactly this. They built a, uh, an Afghan village up in, 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 in East in Is East it Anglia. like a refocusing, is it? In or East or? Anglia. But just, just a thought on this. We are doing a lot of exercises, new types of exercises at the moment in, in, the, in the Baltic uh, states, in, in, East, in Eastern Europe, right? If I were the CGS or Commander Land or whatever, I would say, hang on, we are deploying on NATO exercises, we're showing strength against Pre President Putin and his lot, for example. Mm. If we actually have... To, if this breaks out into not war... But confrontation, where is it going to be? It's going to be in it's going to be in villages, it's going to be in small cities and small towns. Um, this winds up 
the army to do something about it. And don't forget, when you put a soldier through there, sort of a 19, 20, 21-year-old soldier, it's not that he's, oh, here we go again. <laughs> he's doing it for the first mm. time, isn't he? Mm. And that is, and so you, you think what you might have learned from those exercises of the past two years, and you put that into operation here, worthwhile doing. Let's end at sea, though, today, because uh, drug-busting and life-saving efforts by the men and women of RFA Lime Bay earned their vessel the title of Ship of the Year. Uh, it's an amphibious support ship and spent six months in the Caribbean dividing her time between tackling drug running and providing support to communities hit by natural disaster. Chris, I, I, I didn't know there was a, a kind of accolade of Ship of the Year. Yeah, um, it happens every year, and the Navy sort of quite often keep quiet about it. Well, don't make a big thing of it because the other ships get a bit grumpy, and you know, when people get grumpy, they're uncontrollable. But the it's point, had a good time, though, hasn't it? It's earned it. It's earned this award. It is. If you look at the, if you look at, for example, the hurricane season in, in the in the West Indies, mm. uh, it runs from about sort of early summer until uh, November. You wouldn't want to cross uh, before the end of November. And the RFA, Royal Fleet Auxiliary, not a warship, has been out there on patrol helping with all these sort of things like drug running. And mm. they've got on board, for and example. And manned by civilians. It's manned by, and totally by civilians, but they've got on board, obviously, uh, RM people. And they've got, they've got a Lynx helicopter and they've got some booties on board mm. uh, with, with, with their rubber dongos. So that, that's absolutely fine. But the important thing about this, these are civilians. These are people who go to the front war, front front line of, of a war. Falkland Islands, you couldn't have done it without the Royal Fleet Auxiliary. If you if you were to give the award, would you give it to this particular ship? I'd also give it... Uh, yes, I would, the Lime Bay in particular. What, uh, great, great, great uh, departmental, inner ship departmental organisation. And that is all we have time for today. Don't forget, you can download the podcast. Just search online for BFBS SITREP. Uh, tell us what you think. You can tweet us at BFBS SITREP. Bye-bye. See you next week. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2. E leaders.